You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. It's Friday, January 29, 2021, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today in a three-way conversation with Jack Farley and managing editor Ed Harrison. Welcome, guys. Hey, good to see you, Ash. Good to see you, Ed, and good to see you too, Jack. Yeah, Ash, great to be here with you and Ed. Uh, what are you guys thinking in terms of the markets? Yeah, well, I, let me tell you before that, because Ash, he had his his opening there. He was talking about that's been a ridiculous week. I mean, I'm thinking about it as we need to just uh, have people see how the kind of conversations we have and just run through uh, what's been happening this whole week, because it's been so crazy. It's good just to have sort of a bull session here about what's been going on, particularly, you know, with GameStop. I mean, are you thinking about anything else other than GameStop and AMC. Yeah, I'm thinking about GameStop and what's the next GameStop, right? Right. I mean, I actually am thinking about uh, the coronavirus, to be honest with you, you know, the, the variants and stuff, but we can get to that. Yeah, that's an interesting discussion, too, because there's news with the virus and also positive news on the vaccine. Yeah, the Novavax, I think. Is that is that the one? That's the one. And also incredibly positive news on the J&J &J vaccine showing 100% efficacy at preventing death in the latest round of clinical trials. J&J, &J, of course, is the single shot vaccine. So this is big news. And simultaneously, Ed, as you suggest, uh, we've got the South African vir uh, virus variant. We've got the Brazil vir virus variant. And we've got the UK COVID variant. So it is uh, one of these weird news weeks where you have this really positive news that everybody's eager to get excited about. And then at the same time, you have some really frightening news as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of frightening, can, let me let me get Jack in here for a second. You're right. Because uh, you were talking to Peter Cooper uh, right before we came on about uh, Robin Hood. Right. And uh, the, what's going down with the likes of AMC and so forth. Uh, talk to me about your millennial uh, take on uh, on 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 this uh, this tete a tete with the uh, the evil hedge funders. Well, the mainstream narrative narrative making the rounds not just on Wall Street bets but on Twitter, shared by the likes of Chamath Palihapitiya and Mark Cuban, uh, both Real Vision guests, by the way, is that uh, essentially Robinhood betrayed its users by. Uh, you know, not just selling order flow to Citadel, that happens all the time, we, we know that, but by uh, in intentionally helping Citadel and other uh, wealthy hedge funds to, well-heeled hedge funds, to get out of their perilous short positions. Um, and, and, you know, that's why they halted trading, uh, allowing retail users of Robinhood to sell uh, th their stocks, but not buy them. That's the mainstream narrative. Um, I think that could be true. Um, but I think it, I think one of two things is true. Either that, or there are, uh, or Robinhood was having severe liquidity uh, issues 
with its clearance, uh, with, with its own broker, it, its um, clearance house, Apex Clearing, as uh, essentially trades take two days to settle. So uh, there, there's a lot of trust that goes into financial contracts and in, in, in transactions. And generally, it's uh, okay because Apple, you bought it at 110, it went to 112. That's not big of a, so big of a deal. But when you buy something at 80 and it goes to 500, now you're starting to have some problems. So I think it's one, Robinhood is having severe liquidity issues and is in trouble, or two, they stabbed their users in the back. I think I don't think there's a third option there. Does it even matter if Robinhood uh, was culpable and they were siding with one side or that they had liquidity problems? I mean, maybe it's the fact that neither position matters because in the court of public opinion, they've been found guilty already. It's a great question. And I think, you know, to, to Jack's point, neither of those scenarios are particularly great uh, for Robinhood. Look, there's a lot of debate right now. Everybody's going out there spinning their own story on this right now. You will hear uh, one group of folks saying, for example, no, it isn't about payment for order flow. Part of the purchase when you when hedge funds uh, and uh, places like Citadel buy payment for order flow, they're buying two things. One, they're buying order flow, and two, they're buying optionality on whether they internalize the order flow or route to exchanges. Right? This is a pretty complicated topic. So there, on that context, the idea is that they wouldn't be losing money. That would be more suggestive uh, of this of the argument uh, that it was a, a liquidity challenge inside Robinhood. And that might be supported by the fact that Robinhood is raising about a billion dollars now from existing investors, according to reports, I believe, from The New York Times. But at the end of the day, the one thing that I'm reasonably comfortable saying is that we have a problem in this market with complexity and opacity. Retail investors simply do not have the opportunity. They do not have the information to digest uh, all of this news flow and understand what's happening. Today, the latest is, and I think we can throw up the image for this, that there have been severe restrictions uh, over at Robinhood. Uh, we call them restrictions. I feel like I should be doing the air quotes when I say that. Restrictions. You can buy one additional unit of GameStop stock. I mean, come on, guys. If you're, you're basically banning it. Like, bad enough that you're banning users. Like, don't insult people's intelligence by saying, oh, no, no. We're not actually banning it. We're, we're simply restricting the quantity. You're restricting the quantity down to a single stock. Look, maybe there's a regulatory or legal reason for this. I don't, I don't want to be too cynical about it. But this is a weird environment. And again, double uh, the two horsemen of the apocalypse. We, we saw this actually in, uh, in 2007, 2008. Complexity, opacity. Yeah, I, I, it looks bad for, uh, for uh, Robin Hood. Uh, so the real question is... Uh, you know, uh, Max, he took me to task for my whole uh, fourth turning kind of thing. But honestly, I didn't really think that uh, there was any intergenerational conflict uh, before this, before this all happened. You know, I really my view has always been that uh, bad actors uh, took us to the brink in the great financial crisis and they got off scot free and everyone was upset. You know, it was Wall Street against Main Street to a certain degree, even though, you know, I know bankers and not everyone was greedy and, and doing bad things. But now it seems almost as if there's an intergenerational conflict where people are saying these people, you know, they larded us up with debt and, and, and they're trying to get the goods and they're trying to leave us as the bag holders. Yeah, ex extremely well said. And actually, uh, that's a perfect setup to our next segment uh, here where um, I actually spoke uh, to uh, a young uh, 
analyst out there. She's actually a PhD student in bioinformatics, very heavy on the quant side, who's been talking about this uh, on her blog site uh, on Medium, uh, Nope, It's Lily Medium. This is actually her first interview that you will see with her anywhere. So let's cut to that clip. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Lily, welcome to Real Vision. Glad to be here. You know, it's so interesting. I'm going to tell a little bit about the story about how we met on Twitter because it's uh, so like very much in the zeitgeist right now. <laughs> I was very 2020. Uh, yeah, very 2021. I've been reading about uh, GameStop, as most people have. I've been absolutely captivated by this story. And the other night, just before Robinhood suspended trading in the options, you posted this story online about 12 hours before CNBC did. You beat them by uh, almost a half a day. Uh, and I saw this story and I saw the post. You actually had a screenshot up uh, of the notification from Robinhood. Uh, and I, I'm flipping through and I'm saying like, well, who is this person and, and what is she writing about? And then you said, you know, look, I've independently verified this. This is actually from the company. And then I went into your blog where you've been writing uh, about the quantitative aspect of what's happening in these shares and in these options at an extreme level of detail. I should say, you're a PhD student uh, studying bioinformatics out on the West Coast. You're not a professional analyst, but the insights that you have into the stock and into the options, absolutely intriguing. Lily, tell us a little bit, big picture, what have you found? I mean, I think this past week, Everybody kind of realized, you know, the most degenerate case of options here. You know, it's more been most people do not understand how options work. I mean, most people who are even trading options now do not understand how options work because it's a lot of mathematics. You know, when you delve into, let's say, the Greeks, it really gets into the calculus aspect of things. And most people treat it like this gamified, you know, version of, you know, stock. It's basically a casino here. So, right. I mean, GameStop, you know, for example, is one of the most obvious examples of a gamma squeeze. And I know you guys have been talking about this gamma weaver before, where this preponderance, especially of call options, is triggering a rapid increase in price. Right. So what are some of the what are some of the mathematics behind that that you found that you found intriguing? Obviously, you're studying something that's incredibly quantitative in bioinformatics. So you think about uh, these kinds of mathematical models all day long. I mean, the cool thing about options that I've found is, you know, it leads to a very predictable, you know, price effect on the underlying, especially when it's, like I said, in the most degenerate case where it's actually determining what the price should be. In this case, you know, we could see it last Friday was the best example because if you've been following the narrative, first Citroen, you know, put the short seller attack and pissed off all of the internet saying the stock is going to 20. You know, we have information from the service I use, Unusual Whales, that there was a massive put option put out on GameStop right before, you know, this hit piece was published. And for most of last week, you can, you know, pretty much you can see that the price of GameStop was hovering in the, like the high 30s, um, you know, early 40s. And right. this, you know, was ripe for this zero day effect that I talked about in my blog post. The reason was that when, you know, there's a lot of put options out and the price is not going down as it should, or at least as the person hoped it would, 
the delta on this option starts to decrease and it gets closer to expiration. Explain a little bit about that. Unpack for people who don't study options as closely as you are. What does that uh, that decrease in delta mean? So delta, I mean, you know, the most common interpretation of it is it's, you know, not only related to the price of the option versus spot price or the current price of the stock that it's tracking or index, but it's also the probability that this option goes in the money. If you're not familiar with options, there's really two states for an option. There's, well, three. There's in the money, which means that the option strike price, which basically is this promise that the option buyer can buy or sell, depending on if it's a call or a put, at a certain price, at a certain date. It's the relationship between the strike price and the current price of the underlying equity. And when an option is in the money, it doesn't feel the effect of time as much. But when you're talking about the Robinhood crowd or people who are gamifying options, basically as this, you know, insanely levered version of playing the stock market, then most of the buying is going to be out of the money. Out of the money in this case means that the strike price of your option is actually above or, you know, above in terms of a call or below in terms of a put the current price. And what's interesting about that is the relationship of delta, you know, between this concept of in the money and out of the money. So for conventional options, for instance, the maximum shares that this delta can represent is 100. You know, there's different cases, but in the case of, let's say we're talking about the Robin Hood crowd, basically all of their options really are reflecting this, you know, implied exposure to 100 shares of the underlying. And basically... When it's out of the money, the delta, or we can call it the hedge ratio, or the amount of shares you need to mimic the price <clears throat> increase you would buy using just shares, for instance, is a lot lower than 100. Right. And that also makes it a lot cheaper because you know you're not really replicating this exposure to 100 shares of the underlying, especially on a hugely volatile stock like GameStop. Right. But you're also, you know, you're, let's say, representing one share or two shares or three shares or five shares. Right. So the delta is the ratio, basically, that compares the change in the underlying price of the asset to the price of the option. Mm -hmm. And now a lot of your thinking involves gamma, which is the relationship between uh, the de price of uh, delta uh, to the price of the option. Yeah. So, I mean, the big the big picture here is that when an option is out of the money, Basically, it's gamma, depending on how far it is from the current price of the underlying. It really, you know, um, it's really what makes options exponential. You know, there's this talk of this from convexity where the payout of an option is nonlinear. You know, as people, we like linear payouts, basically, or linear relationships for modeling things. Right. But as gamblers, we like convex payouts because, you know, you start with a little money and you get a lot of money if it goes right or right. lose all your money. So in this case, basically, um, gamma is what makes the option convex. And when you buy something that's like hugely out of the money, which you're seeing on GameStop, I mean, on Friday last week, for instance, people pounded 60 strike, basically options when GameStop was around 40 or 45. That's really out of the money, especially for an option with literally expiring by end of today. So, you know, those usually do not have much gamma because Gamma is like the acceleration of delta. Gamma says, you know, okay, when, you know, the option price moves up a dollar, this is what the delta says the price of the option should change. But gamma says, okay, when it moves up a dollar, not only is the option price going up 
And basically, this is implied by the number of shares it represents. But the rate of delta basically is also going up or rather, you know, the delta is increasing. So let's say you start with an option that's one delta and, you know, you buy it for five dollars, for instance, let's make one up. If the price starts moving rapidly, you know, the delta starts increasing because the gamma starts, you know, making it so. Gamma right. itself also can increase, you know, it gets even more nonlinear as you take more derivatives. But in this case, you know, your option that was one delta and super cheap now could be five delta or 10 delta, or as we saw in GameStop last week, all of them became in the money. So literally the entire option chain or the entire chain of options that people could purchase for, you know, the strike or for the date last week, they became all in the money. So that means that no matter if you bought it when it was representing one delta or five delta or a hundred delta, by the end of the day, all of them were a hundred delta. Right. So the rising gamma means accelerating delta. And this is an extremely unusual circumstance uh, to see that all of these options are, in fact, in the money. Uh, and this is something that you've been blogging about extensively. It's not as unusual. I mean, it's something that's gotten really popular, you know, lately. But, you know, we've seen the meme stop, meme, meme stop effect, meme stock effect, you know, this past year. I mean, I recently actually got an email yesterday from someone who, you know, found using the vol surface that NEO, for instance, underwent the gamma squeeze effect in November. Not a surprise if you actually follow that stock, or of course, Tesla is the most famous example of the stock that for whatever reason just kept going up for a whole year. And basically, um, it's really common, especially for these highly speculative storybook stocks that I talk about in you know, my salience posts, because people are betting on this rapid price increase. Right. And so for the math wonks here, uh, Lily, give us a little bit your final take uh, on what you're watching. We talked a little bit last night on Twitter about how you watch these mathematical perturbations uh, to see a disturbance in price. What are you going to be looking for going forward uh, in GameStop and other meme stocks? I mean, meme stocks is interesting because, you know, and I talk about this a bit in my blog post. They do follow a pretty, you know, regular pattern. I mean, these memes, I know everybody just found out GameStop was being pumped right now. But if you're part of the day trader community, you know, people had known for so long GameStop was a value trap for years. And everybody was like, why is this trading, for instance, that, you know, 0.16 times revenue versus something like Tesla, which is trading at like 1500 Um but what's more interesting is that they follow pretty regular, you know, tracks together. I mean, one of the most common things on Twitter people were wondering is like, why did Blockbuster suddenly rally? You know, that's a company that's been dead for basically half the time I've been alive. And, you know, it's mostly been trading at, let's say, like one cent for the liquidation, you know, holding company of it. But it makes sense when you understand this in the concept of sales between people because GameStop is this narrative of a highly shorted, you know, about to go bankrupt, whether true or not, um, you know, stock that basically people latched onto. And, you know, this is what's been driving the short tweets thesis is people not only, you know, attacked GameStop with this, you know, barrage of call options, but they look to the other highly shorted stocks basically as the next GameStop. And right. when you see that, basically... The next logical leap here is what are the most highly shorted companies, the ones that are bankrupt, the ones that are about to go bankrupt, the ones that have gone out of fashion for years. So you're seeing this also, you know, with BlackBerry, 
with Nokia, with Sears Holding, you know, Blockbuster. So they all follow a pretty, you know, regular pattern here. And, you know, I do think, and a lot of people have started taking this pretty seriously, that, you know, this effect can be modeled, this effect can be tracked. And what are you seeing in your models as you begin to build them up? I know this is very new and this is something that you've just started thinking about recently, but what do the models suggest in terms of signals uh, that can trace uh, when one of these effects is about to emerge? I mean, I think, you know, I haven't done any like actual hypothesis testing here really on the meme stock model past, you know, for instance, trying, I mean, a good example was, you know, when I saw GameStop, my immediate thoughts were to go buy Funko. If you're not familiar with Funko, they're, you know, these little video game and movie pops that people buy, highly shorted as well, you know, early in the year because it collapsed from about $15 to $6 around, you know, mid-2020. And what's more interesting about it is I know, for instance, GameStop carries them in store. So you're seeing this spread almost like a blast radius from what we you know, affectionately call a God meme, which, you know, could be GameStop or could be Tesla, for instance. And, you know, this concept of like a consumer mind web. So you go from GameStop, which is this, you know, epicenter, to Masserich, which is their retail holding company, to other shorted stocks, to basically products at GameStop. Another, you know, great example was, you know, this in this narrative, there was Michael Burry, who everybody knows him from the big short or from trying to support Trump on Twitter. Um, Basically, he was an early investor in this GameStop narrative. I'm sure he made a ton of money from this. And, you know, if you just go to companies that were listed in his 13F, because he became this, you know, salient concept for investors. You know, right. he was a part of the GameStop narrative, so everything he touches could be the next GameStop. Right. So, for instance, from this, you could look and find designer brands, which also rallied. You know, there's been this retail effect of companies like, you know, Builder Workshop or Macy's. So these are more, you know, these are farther away from the epicenter of the God meme, which, you know, is GameStop. But they're also seeing traction because, you know, these investors who look at GameStop and say, okay, this is too much for me. I cannot afford, you know, $300 a share of GameStop. Right. I'm going to look for the next big thing. And next big thing, you know, is usually one hop away. It's highly shorted, other meme stocks. But after those, those start rallying. So what do you move after that? You go to the next thing. And once you, you know, track this as a somewhat linear model, you can start to predict the trends here. Fascinating. I should add a couple of points. Uh, first of all, obviously, uh, investing in stocks that are bankrupt, stocks that have <laughs> negative earnings, stocks that are heavily shorted by Wall Street, this is obviously an incredibly high risk opportunity. Uh, adult swim, think about this, talk about this with your financial advisor before you start taking on positions in this. Uh, and the second point here, uh, Lily, is just a quick plug uh, for your blog, Nope, It's Lily uh, at Medium. It's a really interesting blog, and I would encourage everyone to go take a look at it really for two reasons, which is you bring two things together that are very rare to see in the same person. The first is you have obviously a very sophisticated, quantitative, mathematical view of the world, and it's expressed in your blog. And the second point uh, is that you really understand the memetics, uh, the way that these stocks trade, that people in their 20s think about how they think about investing, how they think about consuming information. Uh, You write about Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Uh, You talk about the meme effects of this. It's a really great read. If you're looking to understand how investors in their 20s think about markets, 
go read Nope, It's Lily on Thank you. I mean, it's it's definitely an interesting concept. I think a lot of people are looking at the markets as this PE bank where they've they hit the hedge funds hard enough, especially the highly shorted crowded trades. You know, money falls out. And I mean, in 2020, that worked. You know, everybody was a genius because they bought testicles because they just kept going up. And, you know, a lot of people, especially, you know, these low information, as I call them, you know, investors, they make these split to second decisions based on, you know, what they've seen online, what they think based on, you know, memes they've seen, what they think in their mind web. And, you know, especially when you're in this era that fundamentals don't seem to matter. And I know that's always a famous last word people say before the market crashes. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to basically understand the storybook. You have to understand if you want to stay on the right side of this or ideally, you know, get ahead of this narrative. Basically, you need to understand what people are thinking. Yeah. And you do a great job of explaining how they think about that narrative. Uh, Lily, thank you so much for being on Real Vision. I think this is your first interview anywhere. Uh, I'm sure it won't be your last. I expect you're going to be running money in the near future. We may lose a great researcher in the bioinformatics community, uh, but I imagine we're going to be hearing a lot more from you in the near future. Super appreciate it. So fun to be on. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You know, two things strike me about that interview. The first is obviously she's very quanty and she's bringing uh, her background from bioinformatics into this field to look at the structure of these options from a mathematical perspective. But the second thing that I think is so interesting is when we listen to her conversation about this, the words that she uses, you know, the, the folks on this call, the three of us have probably 50 plus years of experience watching markets. And she uses phrases that we don't generally use. The storybook, the epicenter of the God meme the blast radius, right? This is a shift in the way that the narrative is getting spun, in the way that people talk about markets, in the way that people think about markets, the memetics of markets. It's absolutely fascinating to watch. I'm curious what you guys think. Yeah, I think uh, this whole episode is, uh, it's like uh, good things were happening for a long time. The markets were going up, even in a pandemic. Okay, some of it was over the top, but it's all good. You know, uh, the average Joe was getting some of that. And even though maybe, you know, there was the the potential that it was a bubble and it would burst in a bad way, uh, at a minimum, no one was bigfooting the market. Now we've got someone in there who has their hand on the, uh, you know, on the scale who's tilting things. I think that it's not going to be the same after this. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ash, those are some very uh, interesting words, some phrases that she used. Uh, I might add some uh, from Wall Street Bets. Uh, Maginot line and infinite gamma squeeze and gamma ramp. The Maginot line essentially is the gamma ramp, where once the underlying stock, GME, trades above that level of a call option that up until recently was extremely out of the money, uh, then the dealers have to buy like crazy, and that that's a reflexive uh, loop. So uh, I like the the phrase Maginot line. Yeah, and then once it crosses the Maginot line, you can post screenshots of your attendees. Absolutely. 
You know, the Maginot Line is, uh, it, that's not a good phrase if you think about it from, a, a, you know, what happened and what it represents. Yeah. Just going yeah. back to my narrative. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the uh, what was it, the ninth uh, German Panzer Corps quite sensibly steered through the Ardennes Forest around the Maginot Line to invade France in World War II. So you may be right there, Ed. Probably not the best metaphor. Yeah. Uh, uh, putting Putting that aside, just looking at the options flows, it appears that the Maginot Line uh, will not be breached for the following um, week because I I'm just looking at the uh, total number of orders where the uh, on the on the uh, left side, you'll see uh, the open interest, which is basically how many were, were bought that day. Um, and on the uh, X oh, the, on the bottom, you'll see the moneyness. So on the further to the right is the super out of the money contracts and further to the left is in the money. Um, so those super out of the money options, such as six, a 60 call option when um, uh, when the underlying was at 15, uh, you're not seeing people buy those at all. Now, I don't know, have the Wall Street bets folks given up or is it more likely, is it because of the, the brokerages are preventing them from buying those options? But right. it seems like the, the gamma ramp uh, will not continue just looking at the flows. Yeah, I guess that's not surprising when you look at some of the restrictions. And by the way, we should add, it's not just Robinhood that's placed restrictions on this. It's many of the large uh, retail brokers have done the same thing. Right. I think IAB, they did the same thing. Uh, and there were some other brokers. I can't uh, remember if it was Schwab uh, or E-Trade, you know, JP Morgan or uh, Morgan Stanley's E-Trade. I, I think that they also had some restrictions. So uh, that that does go to the narrative, the first narrative that uh, Jack was talking about, that it, it was a liquidity event that, you know, when this uh, stock is gapping up at such a great level, uh, the, you know, they have to post a, a huge amount of extra liquidity to the uh, uh, to the regulator or to the, uh, the the person who is making those trades happen, and they didn't want to do it anymore, so they they uh, they stopped the ability to trade in those uh, in those shares. Yeah, I think you could see the the impact of that already. Uh, we did not see a large uh, gamma squeeze today. Uh, the price varied between two hundred and uh, sixty and to about four forty. Um, and you can see the, the various levels uh, at which the shares were uh, bought and sold. Um, but I'm interested in, in another uh, table, which is from uh, Matt Levine, which is Citadel, Citadel, excuse me, Citadel Securities retail flow um, this week. And so on Monday, uh, net net, the retails bought two million uh, shares. But for Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursdays, and Thursday, the retail were net sellers, which confounded me, and uh, I think contradicts the narrative that you're hearing that all of the hedge funds, all of the suits, as Dave Portner would say, are on the short side. I think there are a lot of, of hedge funds that are uh, jumping on the trends of the retail and trying to front run them. And, and I know uh, I've, I've talked to Chris Sidiel, uh, who's, who's deep in this space, that he sees uh, correlations at five in the morning between, you know, AMC goes down 5% and then bam, um, uh, BlackBerry goes down 5%. And these, it's not Wall Street bets folks who are making those things. That, that's an algorithm. So I think yeah. the narrative that it's only the hedge funds on the short side is a, a little inaccurate. Yeah, I, I spoke to a hedge fund manager uh, last night uh, who was saying to me, look, I can't prove anything. I don't have any math, but I'm seeing some weird wobble on the numbers on my screen that I don't usually see. Yeah, and, you know, I don't know if it was you, Jack, who was talking about passive flows there, but uh, 
the the fact is that as a percentage of the Russell 2000, uh, at some point GameStop became a, a, a figure of note, and you know uh, you, you've got to buy if uh, if it's a part of the index. Otherwise, you're effectively short that particular stock. So, to me, that shows you that it's not just retail that there are market dynamics internally that are happening that are creating a, 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 a you know this thing where a, a rolling stone gathers no moss and even though you say that we're trading this range that's a very high range relative to where gamestop uh first started to me it suggests that there may be a lot of downside risk to come uh when we see next week that you know gamestop could just fall through the bottom yeah, that raises an important question, Ed, about the meta-narratives that are ongoing here, which is to what extent is passive indexation uh, squeezing the floats uh, and making this sort of gyration in price uh, exaggerated? Well, you know, when we saw the same thing happening in, um, in August with the uh, mega cap tech stocks, we did see the indices move. And because the mega cap tech stocks are large percentages of the indices, the movement was not just retail related or it was not gamma squeeze related. It was also passive index related. And to that degree, what it would suggest to me is, is that, you know, it's almost a, a, a form of momentum uh, uh, that gives the market more momentum than you might think. As long as the market's up and to the right, which it is 90, 95 percent of the time, that momentum is good. But to the degree that you have an air pocket, that you know you have a, a level of force selling as a result of indexation that could exacerbate the downside moves. So that's where we are, where we see, uh, I believe, uh, passive investing actually magnifying uh, moves once we get to the fat tail portions of of the uh, of the curve. Jack, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think I agree with that. I think that in order for this uh, stock not to crash, it has to keep going up. I think it's unlikely that it, it uh, stays within the 300 and I think it's unlikely like it like it trades like a Regeneron stock, which I think is in the 400s, where it just sort of like levels out. I think uh, I, either up or down. I, I know I spoke with Weston on the exchange with Nick Correa and Weston said that uh, I think by next Friday, it'll be over $1,000 or less than $10. I think he was uh, exaggerating a little bit, but I think there is that uh, uh, pol polarization dynamic where uh, it has to be the, the short squeeze feeding on the gamma squeeze feeding on the passive squeeze, or uh, th this stock will collapse. Um, I think how fast it collapses will uh, hinge on, on uh, whether the pirates on Wall Street bets uh, have a little bit of a mutiny. So far, they've been incredibly resolute, which has uh, impressed me uh, beyond my expectations. I think Monday is going to be critical because uh, that is going to be the day on whether we see um, uh, the, the new uh, call options that are extremely out of the money, the most out of the money, will be bought or even issued. I think there are 900 uh, February 5th uh, call options call at a strike price of 900. Um, but you know that that is. Uh, not uh, it's it's 200 to 300 percent of the money uh, moneyness now doesn't have that uh, extreme level of buying a 65 option when it was 10. Um, and 
I also am noticing, and I, I don't have a chart for this, but I just was going through the options book and seeing which ones were being bought. Um, it there a lot of options are being bought, but number one, more puts than uh, calls are being bought in, in open is interest, which is a sign in and of itself. Um, but secondly, the, the call options that are being bought are more in the money, and that goes uh, to the bubble chart that we showed earlier. Uh, so there's there's a wider spread uh, indicating that the Wall Street bets folk are not so much going for the extreme gamma squeeze, or rather they're not so united on the front. Because you know b buying a call option at 100 when the stock price is at 20 is a little bit of a uh, you know sacrificing yourself for the tribe mentality. You you are probably not going to make money if it you know, um, and you're almost certainly not going to make money if it goes in the money. You're going to make you're going to make out like a bandit. But really. The, the um, coordinated attack element relies upon users going heavily into those extremely out of the money call options that, that are, by the way, short duration, so they get as much bang for their buck. Um, so I think it depends on, do they have an appetite to sort of sacrifice themselves for the herd, and to be a herd at all? And number two, are the exchanges, uh, the market makers and the brokerages, especially the retail brokerages like Robinhood, uh, going to allow those contracts to be bought? Let me ask you a question there, because when you said you're sacrificing yourself, are you saying you're sacrificing yourself because you'll never be in the money? Because obviously, uh, if you're way out of the money and you become much more in the money, you could get a massive appreciation, especially if the implied vol goes way up. So, I mean, if the stock, if the stock goes from 20 to 40 and you're holding something that's at 100, you've made a ton of cash right there. Incredibly that's important right. point. Options reprice based on uh, the pricing of the of the underlyings and the risk. And when things move, when the underlying price moves, you can make money, uh, even though the stock option is not necessarily in the money itself. Yes, I, I think uh, sacrificing yourself for the herd uh, may be an inaccurate metaphor. I think a better analogy is uh, um, parachuting into enemy territory uh, when it's filled with guards with AK-47s. It's an ex it's a Jack Bauer mission. And in this case, it paid off. But we're not seeing as many Jack Bowers. Now, I'm wondering, is my, is the Bloomberg data that I'm getting, is it inaccurate because they're buying it on some other exchange? I, I wouldn't put anything past these Wall Street bets, folks. Um, is it because they are just holding on to the underlying? Or I think the third option, most likely, is that they simply can't because um, uh, the, 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 they, uh, the retail brokerages are preventing them from buying. It's military metaphor Friday here. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny, you said uh, uh, pirates, and, and it seems like almost in some ways uh, they're behaving less like pirates and more like well-trained uh, 19th century British regulars. They're standing in fixed formation, and they're actually able to uh, execute these maneuvers uh, by, by precisely what you said, Jack, which is holding fast uh, to the mission. Yeah, I would just say I have to give the Wall Street Bets folks credit. I think the average level of sophistication is is obviously below the, the uh, hedge fund level, but in aggregate, uh, they listen to their leaders and their, their leaders, such as deep effing value, um, <laughs> they know what they're doing. And they, they got Melvin Capital and Citadel and a lot of other hedge, uh, hedge funds off short. And I think they have changed the game for market neutral uh, hedge funds that say, oh, we're gonna make money if the S&P goes up or if it goes down because we're gonna go long Apple, a great stock that everyone knows or you know is is a, has a promising future and short a dog like um, like GameStop. Well, the Wall Street bets said, "Hey, they're quoting sort of a, a Jim Cramer phrase. I like the stock, which which I love because it's kind of saying, 
you know, when you're on television, you can't say buy this stock because that would be sort of securities manipulation. But by saying, I like the stock, I like Lennar, I like this, you're sort of <laughs> saying it without really <laughs> saying it, you're, you're implying it. So um, yeah, I wouldn't put anything past these uh, folks. We've, we're talking about uh, what's going to happen uh, next week. You know, I think it was interesting when Weston Nakamura said it's either four or a thousand. What if uh, actually people at Wall Street bet say, you know what, uh, we're going to sacrifice uh, GameStop and we're going to go to American Airlines, where I have seen some action. You know, they're moving on to different targets. Uh, what happens to GameStop and what happens to the overall market in the case where it's just, you know, one after the next? They take a whole slew of gamma squeezes and then they move to another uh, set of gamma squeezes. Uh, I, I think that's such a great question, Ed. I, I know yesterday there briefly was a time when the two most up stocks in the S&P 500, I believe, were American Airlines and um, uh, uh, L Brands, or so AAL and LB. And I, I sort of am diagnosing myself with uh, GameStop brain because I just can't stop seeing something and then seeing a pattern because I know uh, Melvin Capital, which is the hedge fund that was extremely short, um, which was sort of the canary in the coal mine, the hedge fund that got blown up and had to be bailed out. They were long L brands. And I saw people on Wall Street bets saying, hey, let's go, let's take the opposite side of Melvin's position. Let's, let's like, you know, let's, let's stick this uh, guy. Um, so I'm saying, hmm, is yeah. the fact that L brands is going up, is that because uh, 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 GME is, is going down and, um, uh, you know, that the position is working against them. And then AAL is going up. I know that's another favorite of Wall Street bets. So I'm just seeing all sorts of correlations, Ed, but um, I, I'm going to have to uh, uh, punt it to Ash. Ash, what do you think make of it? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, one of the things that I noticed uh, in the conversation with Lily, one of the phrases that she used was hitting the hedge funds hard. So they're not thinking about this in terms of fundamental valuation, obviously. They're thinking about it like traders. They're playing this game like poker players. They're playing it in an adversarial context. They know that there are other people on the other side of the trade who are massively short, 150% uh, of the short uh, of the uh, total float in short interest, for example, on GME, and that's how they're playing this game. One of the important things that we should talk about here, and the, the word uh, manipulation came up, market manipulation, securities manipulation. Obviously, none of the three of us are securities lawyers, uh, but I imagine that folks uh, at SEC are probably thinking about this right now. I'm just not sure uh, where free speech ends on the one hand, and uh, and market manipulation begins. You tend to think of those things as being applied to uh, regulated entities, uh, institutional investors and insiders. Uh, but whether or not uh, SEC and some of the other relevant regulators are going to start thinking about uh, attempting to shut down uh, some of this, uh, some of this uh, chatter uh, and whether or not they're actually able to do it from a technological perspective, very much big open questions. That is a good question, by the way, because I saw a video, I, you know, anyone who's watching this, they should Google uh, Jim Cramer, Aaron Task, thestreet.com. There's a video where Jim Cramer was telling Aaron Task how they used to do stuff that was totally legal uh, yeah. as a hedge fund guy and what he would do if he were still in the markets today. Uh, I think it was from like 2014. Yeah. And to me, it had all of the same sort of trappings of the kinds of things that the Wall Street bets people are doing. That is this adversarial type of thing. We know that people are positioned in this way, so we're going to do 
their position in X way, we're going to do Y in order to, you know, move these stocks that way. Not, you know, from a fundamental value perspective, just to get a little extra out of it. Maybe they were only getting, you know, one or two percent or five percent and they had it leveraged up. And so as a result, they made 20 to 50 percent as opposed to, you know, a thousand percent in this case. But it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. And what Kramer was saying is, is that it's totally legal. Uh, so to me, that's where the question comes into play here. If you're looking at Jim Kramer saying this is totally illegal and I was doing it as a hedge funder and an analogous situation comes up here and the SEC steps all over it, then you've got uh, you've got a problem. And that and I think this is the political problem that is cropping up left and right. This is what has Ted Cruz and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez together on the exact same issue. For about 15 seconds, at least. But, um, you, you know, to pick up on what you, what you said, Ed, and I, I know exactly the video with, that you're talking about, um, but really interesting, you know, people often forget about Jim Cramer. You know, he's obviously, he's the consummate showman. He's great uh, doing that, but he's a very serious lawyer. Uh, he's a guy who graduated from Harvard Law School, was a research assistant to Alan Dershowitz. He's very seriously in the weeds uh, on the legal aspect of it. And I, I tuned in uh, to uh, Squawk Alley, I think, a couple of days ago. And he said he was on the phone with his securities lawyers. Now, I imagine uh, Jim Cramer's securities lawyers probably know what they're talking about. And they said to him, according to what he said on the air, there's nothing we can do about this. There's nothing that can be done about this. This is free speech, at least as the laws and regulations and rules are written today. Yeah, very interesting. You know, I don't want to break up this, and I know that we're running way over uh, in our conversation, but we haven't even talked about the fact that uh, Johnson & Johnson has this uh, vaccine, which is 100% effective. I mean, I think months ago, I was saying, uh, on the positive side here, instead of talking about the negative, that, you know, we've got, we've got, we'll get like half a dozen of vaccine choices uh, within a number of months. We, and we have that now. Novatax, we have the, the Russian and the Chinese vaccines. We have AstraZeneca. We have uh, Pfizer. You know, it's amazing. Yeah, it's really a bright spot in all of this. And it, it really is the, the feeling that, that things are, at least are working well. I was actually sort of chuckling about something related to this when I was at the end of the interview with Lily. Uh, I thought to myself, she's studying bioinformatics. I had to look that up. Apparently, it's the union of software development, computational biology, and statistical genomics. Uh, and I, you know, these are obviously the folks who do things like uh, who come up with novel biological treatments for cancer, uh, sequence genes for pandemics. And I was watching that video with her, and I was thinking she's never going to get to do any research with this because she's going to get recruited by a quant fund. Uh, so I guess I feel pretty good about the fact that the uh, that the, the biopharma industry uh, in the United States was able to come out and globally, in fact, was able to really work very hard on this. In fact, what it seems, Ed, is that the, the pure research component of this, the R&D com component uh, that these bio and pharma companies did are actually far ahead of what should be the easier part, which is logistics, getting mm. those vaccines into the arms of citizens. Yeah. Um, let me uh, let me burst the bubble a little bit, because I know that, uh, you know, we started talking about the, the vaccine with regard to uh, the Brazilian and the South African variants. I mean, I read a story in the um, AP that said that they found the Brazilian va variant, which has been proven 
to be very difficult. I believe it was against the AstraZeneca um, uh, particular uh, vaccine in two different places in South Carolina. And the two individuals have never been outside of their you know, general locations. And they have no linkage, obvious linkage to one another. And this is South Carolina, and they're getting the Brazilian variant. To me, that speaks to this variant being everywhere already. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, the, we talk about it, the UK variant, the Brazilian variant, the South Africa variant. The reality is that viruses don't stop to get their uh, passport stamped at customs. Uh, and that this is going to be something that's very tricky. And and some of the initial data I've seen, and I, I'm not really comfortable uh, with remembering exactly which and what the efficacy rates are, but they showed uh, that the vaccine, I think it was the J&J &J vaccine, does in fact confer immunity, but at an 8 or 10% lower rate uh, against some of the other strains. So I guess it's kind of a mixed news. It does suggest uh, that these that these viruses are, in fact, more virulent, more difficult uh, to treat, but there is some immunity. Uh, but it's going to take time, obviously, for that data to get out there. Jack, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, well, um, thanks, Ash. To be honest, I've really been focusing in on GameStop. Like, I can tell you it was the eighth most traded um, number in the, in the Russell 2000 in, today in terms of volumes. But I can't tell you where the S&P was, although I'm guessing it was down because the Dow was down 500 points. So I'm, I've been very specific. So I've actually been enjoying uh, being silent and uh, learning from you two and listening. But um, Ed, wh where do you think uh, uh, your outlook on the virus, you just said, how does that impact um, what you think in terms of the reflation narrative, which remains the, the dominant narrative? Yeah, so I, my feeling is that uh, it was interesting talking to Dave Floyd about this yesterday on RVDB, that right now we're in the midst of a retest, potentially, of that 119 level on the 10-year. Uh, and I think that to the degree that it escapes to the 120 to 125 level, that's going to be another level where people are going to start thinking that reflation and inflation are the same, and that's negative for shares. Um, I think that's one thing that's uh, interesting to watch. But if you look at it from a longer term perspective, I, I take a different view than Justin Stebbing. My, he was talking about everything will be hunky-dory by April. To me, uh, what it suggests is that uh, we will get out of where we need to go for the most vulnerable. They will get vaccinated, but the vaccinations will be less secure. And as a result, the new normal will be significantly different to the old normal, significantly enough different that uh, either you can think of it as another uh, tunnel that we have to go through before we're all uh, you know, good and ready, or as uh, a new normal that means that the reflation trade's not a good trade. Um, so stocks like uh, American Airlines are obviously very affected by that. Because in that, in that situation, in a situation, let's say, where the uh, Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine is only 85% effective, are you going to go to uh, Long Island and go to the Hamptons? Or are you going to go to Mexico, uh, to Cancun for vacation? I think that you're probably going to go, if you're living in the New York area, as you two are, to the Hamptons, 
uh, you know, or the Poconos or whatever it might be. So I think that that is uh, what we're going to see. And uh, that's going to have some serious impacts if if it turns out to be like that. Excellent. You know, yeah. yeah it's funny you say that because, um, you know, yesterday uh, American Airlines was up a tremendous amount. I, I don't know the exact amount, uh, but let's just say 20 percent. Um, so it's clear that the rational participants in the market expect that uh, demand for air travel will increase uh, 20 percent. So uh, how, how come it's that your uh, view differs from the uh, extremely rational view of the uh, traders? Of well, course, of course, uh, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you saw the Dan, I, I uh, interviewed your friend uh, Dan Zwarn, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, he was saying exactly the same thing that I was saying. Uh, and his quote was, you know, in the old days, I would take this trip, you know, from JFK to uh, Hong Kong, you know, over and over again. I am not doing that. Not now, and certainly not in a world in which you have these uh, variants that are escaping. And so to me, uh, that's telling you that American Airlines, which gets a huge percentage of its revenue from business travel and long haul business travel in particular, they're going to be hurting in a big way. Yeah, I should just say, uh, Jack, thanks for bringing us back to look at the forest for the trees. Uh, S&P 500 on the day down 1.93% to 37.14. On the week, looks like it's off about 3.7%. Great show today. Great getting an opportunity to talk to both of you guys. Jack, I love that you're in the weeds uh, on GameStonk and following this like breathlessly. It's fantastic. And Ed, as always, so important uh, for your context and your perspective on this market, talking about what's happening in the broader economy, understanding what's happening with the virus, and then calculating the parameters for how that impacts not just the day's events uh, in the trading, but also the broader economic outlook going forward. Final thoughts from both of you. I'm looking forward to, uh, to drinking some alcohol. <laughs> I, too, am looking uh, forward to drinking a lot of alcohol. Uh, perhaps uh, I'll, I'll, Max and I will uh, uh, go out um, and get a, a little, little tipsy with uh, some people tonight, this weekend. But um, my, I do have a closing thought. Sorry, part, pardon for that. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm sorry to the, the audience for, uh, I know you, got, you guys, everyone at home, want to get to your weekend. But I do have a thought, which I think, uh, Ed, you brought up maybe about 15 minutes ago, which is the impact of short sellers and market manipulation. It is true. Wall Street bets saying, hey, uh, I could say I like the stock and I can sort of you know, imply, uh, 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 the, the, uh, you know, elbow um, other people saying, hey, let, let's let's do this. But how, so that's market manipulation. But how come it's not market manipulation when Citron Research puts out a report saying, I don't like the stock? Um, and, and might I add, how come it, uh, on the bankers on the sell side, when they say, I like a stock, uh, is it because they have that excess stock on the book? I, I was reading um, Reminiscences of a Stock uh, Operator, Edwin by uh, Edwin Lefebvre, uh, Ed, at the beginning of this week on Monday, I was uh, halfway through. Now I, I just finished it. And he, he was saying in, in 1923, I think that, yeah, anytime there's a rumor, there's a hot tip on the street, it's because someone who's in the know wants to do the exact opposite trade. So uh, <laughs> that's my final thought. Jack, <laughs> power to the people. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, you know. I'm wearing a suit, but I'm, I'm not a suit. Don't let the suit fool you. Uh, guys, this was a great free-for-all. We're going to need to do this more often. Jack, Ed, let's all raise a glass uh, tonight thinking about the week that was. Definitely. Thank you, Ash. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Uh...
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.